You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. This afternoon, as this morning, we find our scripture reading in the Gospel according to John. John chapter 9, and we will read this chapter in its entirety. This chapter also forms a text for the sermon. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home, seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know that he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. 
But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him now. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Brothers and sisters, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, To be blind is a hard disability to bear. Imagine not being able to see the faces of the people you love. Never being able to notice the sunrise. Never being able to rejoice in the sunset. Never on a marvelous spring day being able to look all around and enjoy the beauty of the snow-capped mountains here around the Fraser Valley. Truly, the gift of sight is a wonderful gift of God. And not being able to see is a, is a disability difficult to endure. However, as we saw this afternoon from our scripture reading in John chapter 9, there is something in the world that is worse by far than physical blindness. Worse than physical blindness by far is being blind to God, being spiritually blind, living in God's beautiful world, but not having an eye for the God who made it all. Spiritual blindness means that our eyes are not open to see the glory of God in creation, and they are not open to see the glory of God as he has revealed himself in his word in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we see how the Lord Jesus heals. He heals both physical blindness, and he also heals that more pervasive and that more difficult disability of spiritual blindness. And so let us listen as Christ demonstrates that he is the light of the world. That's our theme. Christ demonstrates that he is the light of the world. And we see first that he opens the eyes of the blind. And secondly, that he shows the blindness of those who think they can see. The whole story begins with the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples walking the streets of Jerusalem, probably in the vicinity of the temple where people were often known to spend their time begging for alms. And as they walk the streets of Jerusalem, they encounter a man begging, of whom it was said that he was born blind. His eyes had never been opened to the glory of God's creation. He hadn't been able to see. Meeting him leads the disciples to ask Jesus a question the Jews were fond of discussing, the question of blame. 
Teacher, who is to blame for this man's disability? You see, as, as we know from the book of Job, for example, many of the Jewish people believed that when bad things happen to people, it's because they're bad. Just think of how Job's comforters in chapters 3 and following of the book of Job continually try to get Job to confess his sin. They look at this transition in Job's life from health to sickness, and they say, Job, what have you done? That was the only explanation they could conceive of. And so here the, the, the disciples want to discuss this favorite topic with their teacher, the Lord Jesus. But this particular situation had a twist because here was a person suffering a disability from birth. And that confronted the Jewish people with a conundrum, a theological conundrum. Who is to blame for this man's disability? Is it himself? Or was it because of his parents doing something evil before he was born? And in case you're wondering, the Jewish people actually did believe that you could sin prenatally. One wonders how they could arrive at such a conclusion. But the rabbis do write about this, that you could be guilty, for example, of idolatry, the sin of idolatry, even before you were born. And so here's the question for the Lord Jesus. Who is to blame? This man himself who has a disability or his parents? Well, as we saw this morning and as we see throughout the Gospels, actually, the Lord Jesus regularly rejects the way in which the questions are set up for him. He tells them in this case that, look, it's not helpful for us to talk about the whole question of blame. We shouldn't think of sickness in terms of blame. Of course, the Lord Jesus would readily admit that sometimes people very personally reap the fruit of their own folly. For example, if you if you have a car, a hot car, and you speed with that hot car, and you take risks with that hot car, and one day you have an accident with that hot car, then people will say, well, you brought it on yourself. And we're told by physicians that there are some illnesses that are the direct consequence of lifestyle choices we make. So the Lord Jesus would not deny that. But what the Lord Jesus denies is that there is some kind of inherent, unbreakable bond between our behavior and illness or adversity of any kind. Instead of talking about the question of who is to blame for sickness or adversity, the Lord Jesus Christ encourages God's people to think about the purpose in it all. Lord Jesus wants you to be assured, brothers and sisters, that when adversity comes into your life, just as it came into the life of this blind man and his parents, that there is a divine purpose in it. Now we have to be watchful that we're not arrogant, as if we somehow know what that purpose is. Because if truth be told, in most cases we don't know what the purpose is. We don't know what God is doing. God is God. God's thoughts are divine thoughts. His plans are divine plans. And we cannot in many ways fathom the divine plans of God. Oh, oh, to be sure, sometimes people will say, after they've gone through some kind of adversity, and looking back on it from the vantage point of, of several years or more, they might be able to say something like, you know, when we were going through that time of trial, it was very difficult to endure but now we can see that God was doing something good back then. That God was somehow making himself more real to us. 
that in our weakness God was showing his strength. Many people have testified that in their times of adversity, God has strengthened their faith and God has shown himself in a special way to be present to them. But as I said earlier, we must not be arrogant and we must not imagine that we can always say with any depth of conviction that this is precisely what God was accomplishing. Because the truth is we see only a little and we see usually after the fact. But here in this situation, the Lord Jesus Christ congregation, he puts all the focus on the purpose of God, and he says that the purpose of God in the blindness of this man is that the work of God might be revealed through his life. It's a pretty amazing thought, isn't it, that this man's blindness had a specific purpose, that the glory of God might be revealed through him. And then the Lord Jesus immediately began to do that work of God. And the way he did it strikes us as very unusual. He spits on the ground. He mingles his spittle with some of the dirt on the ground, makes a bit of mud, and he applies it as a kind of a poultice, I, I suppose, to the, to the eyes of that man. And then he tells him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash himself. And without any further ado, the blind man goes and does this thing. Now, people have often wondered about the details of this story. People have thought deeply about this mud that Jesus made out of spittle. And they have said things like, this this mud reminds us of the way in which God made human beings in the beginning. He made human beings of the earth, of the dust of the ground, as one of the poetic passages of the Bible puts it. And so they say, well, just as God made human beings from the, from the dust of the ground in the beginning, so God is here doing his work of recreation. He's bringing about restoration of creation. And the Lord Jesus signifies that by once again using the dust of the ground. Well, you know, I cannot say whether this is true. I do not think the text gives us an indication in and of itself to go in this direction. We can only speculate really about why Jesus used spittle. We can use medical, we can read medical textbooks of that period and find out that some people believe spittle had some kind of therapeutic properties and physicians at the time, believe it or not, made fairly regular use of spittle. Their own spittle or the spittle of those who weren't well. Truth is, we don't really know what the details mean and we shouldn't focus on them too much. What should catch our attention and what should be our focus is instead the result of this somewhat unusual procedure. And the amazing result of this unusual procedure is that this man, who had been blind from his birth, goes home seeing. Think about that. For the very first time in his life, this man is able to see God's blue sky. He sees for the first time in his life the sun shining. He sees, maybe that was the first thing he saw as he got up from the pool of Siloam. He saw the sun rays striking the surface of the water of the pool. And he may have seen the trees on the side of the pool. And the sparrow was flying from tree to tree. And then he goes home joyfully. And for the first time in his life, he sees the face of his father and mother. He sees the bed in which he'd lain for many years. 
He goes out on the street and he sees the people beside whom he lived, but whom he'd never been able to see. He sees them, they see him too, and of course, the questions arise. This man looks like the blind beggar. Wait a minute, it is the blind beggar. And other people say, no, no, it's not the blind beggar, it's it's someone who looks like him. It can't be him. But then the blind man, the healed blind man, tells him himself the truth. Yes, I am the man. I was blind, but now I see Jesus did it. That's how his testimony goes. Jesus did it. It's true. Jesus is the light of the world. That's what he had said already in chapter 8. That's what we read again in chapter 9. I am the light of the world. And here in this sign, the Lord Jesus Christ gives proof that he is indeed, in a very dramatic way, the light of God's world. Because now we see a man who had lived in darkness walking in the light of day. A beautiful miracle, a powerful miracle that speaks volumes about what will happen on the great day of days when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and majesty and the lame will walk and the blind will see and those with disabilities will be wondrously restored, their ears opened, their eyes opened to the wonders of God and his creation. But even though a great miracle has happened in this man's life, even though it's true that he has begun to taste something of the power of the new creation, it's also true that he doesn't yet know too much about this man who healed him. He openly admits who it was. He confesses Jesus in that way. Jesus did it. But he doesn't know much about Jesus. We might say the eyes of his body have been opened, but the eyes of his heart have not yet been enlightened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the next part of the story shows us how the Lord Jesus continued to work with this man to bring him from being spiritually blind to a spiritual seer, a person who could see spiritually the truth about God and about God's salvation. And this process of giving this man spiritual vision begins when the man is standing now in front of the Pharisees, as we find him in the second part of the narrative. He's standing in front of the Pharisees because the Pharisees, once again, are not happy about what's happening through the ministry of Jesus. They're not happy about this healing. They manifest no joy at this wondrous inbreaking of the power of God. They're not happy, you see, because it happened on the Sabbath day. And according to their interpretation of the Sabbath day, which was not really God's Sabbath law, but their interpretation of it, healing people on the Sabbath was not allowed unless their lives were in danger, then it was allowed. In addition, the Lord Jesus had made mud. And what was making mud if not the work of a potter? And the work of the potter was specifically proscribed for the Sabbath day. And so their logic is, If Jesus is doing this kind of work on the Sabbath day, then clearly he cannot be a man sent by God because it was God who gave the Sabbath day and God would not send a man in violation of the Sabbath day to do God's work. And so instead of being open to what God is doing through Jesus Christ, the Pharisees are determined right from the start to cast doubt upon what happened 
cast doubt thereby also upon Jesus and his authenticity, his validity as a man of God. If you think about it, their attitude is truly staggering. Staggering because of the spiritual blindness that it displays. Nobody in Israel had ever heard of a man born blind being restored to full vision. All miracles are special, but but this was a miracle in a class of its own. A unique miracle of God. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll never hear about a blind man being restored to vision. It was a unique miracle. Something that went beyond, if I may say it that way, ordinary miracles. And the report of this unique miracle done by the Lord Jesus should have driven the Pharisees to the Scriptures. It should have reminded them of the song we sang a few moments ago, Psalm 146, where in stanza 4 in the book of praise, we, we read that it is God who gives sight to the blind. And this remarkable intrusion of God's power into the world should also have reminded these Pharisees of what the prophets wrote about the coming Messiah. Several of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, which the Pharisees knew were messianic prophecies, spoke specifically about how in the days of the Messiah, God would open the eyes of the blind. I think of Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, speaking about the Messiah to come, the hope of Israel, says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And so there are more passages in the Bible that link this unique miracle to the arrival of God's Messiah. And so by healing this man, of whom it was known by everyone that he was born blind, the Lord Jesus Christ was making a very clear, emphatic statement. It was a revelation of his identity. It wasn't just a random miracle. It wasn't just to impress people. It was to reveal to them in prophetical language who he was, that he was no mere rabbi, that he was no mere teacher, not even merely a prophet, but that he was something different. He was God at work in Israel. And the Pharisees also, if they had been truly spiritual men, men filled with the Spirit, they should have understood that healing a blind man was a singularly appropriate thing to do on the Sabbath day. After all, what was Sabbath all about? Sabbath was God giving rest to his people. Rest from sin, rest from all the effects of sin, rest from toil, rest from misery, rest from suffering. Paradise, that's what Sabbath was all about. It was a reminder of what paradise had been. And not only so, Sabbath was also a pointer to what God had promised. It was a pointer to the kingdom of God that was on the way. Well, today this man, this formerly blind man, had received the wonderful foretaste of the rest of paradise, rest from sin and all the consequences of sin, including disability and suffering. And you know, truly spiritual leaders, truly spiritual religious leaders would have recognized the meaning of Christ's miracle. They would have been humbled by that miracle. It would have brought them to their knees in thankful adoration that God had done such a thing. And that would have put them in a frame of mind to begin to fathom the deeper significance of it. But because these Pharisees are not truly spiritual men, but are men of the flesh only, they have only one goal in mind. 
and that is to call into question this miracle and so to discredit the Lord Jesus. And isn't it sad that that's what we find them doing on page after page? Instead of being open to the glory of God in Christ, they want to discredit Christ. They want to cast doubt upon everything he does. But in order to discredit the Lord Jesus in this case, they first have to discredit the man who had been healed. And so they call him into their their chamber, so to speak, and they try everything with him. They try to get him to second-guess himself. They try to get him to contradict himself. They bring in his parents to see if they could create uncertainty through the parents. And when that fails, they resort to, well, the measure of last resort, and that was just pure intimidation tactics. They impress on this man their authority as religious teachers. They remind him of the consequences of not being in submission to them. And they end by saying, give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now, of course, they didn't know anything of the sort. But they claim it in their arrogance as their knowledge. But the remarkable thing is that no matter what they try, brothers and sisters, this man holds his ground. And that was no small thing. You have to imagine yourself as a person of no account in the community. And and there you are in the presence of those with tremendous power, the highest authority in the church, in many ways the highest authority in the city. They ruled every aspect of of Jewish life. And here this man, he, he just holds his ground over against them. He sticks to the facts. He refuses to be intimidated. He won't let anyone pressure him into changing his story just for their convenience. No, the facts as he experiences them, that's what he confesses. He doesn't know everything about Jesus, but one thing he knows for sure, he had been blind, and now he sees, and he knows that Jesus is the one who made the difference for him. And so even though his knowledge is not a complete knowledge, it's not a full knowledge, he shows good courage and he shows loyalty to Christ. He shows loyalty to Christ as the one who healed him, who opened his eyes, who allowed him to rejoice visually in the glory of God's creation. But more than just sticking to the facts, this healed man also is beginning to interpret them with the help of God. You know, facts don't really mean much until they're interpreted. And he's interpreting them. He's starting to interpret them. We see in this man the beginning of faith. Look carefully at what he says about Jesus. In verse 17, he says, when asked, who do you say he is? And he says, well, he's a prophet. That was the last thing the Pharisees wanted to hear. But he says it. He's a prophet. And if Jesus is a prophet... That means he's bringing God's word to Israel. And if he's a bringer of God's word to Israel, then Israel needs to listen. And so the healed man is saying here, I need to listen to Jesus. He's a prophet. His prophetic credentials have been verified in an unmistakable way. I need to listen to this Jesus. And you Pharisees, even though you are the teachers of Israel, you also need to be in submission to the teaching of Jesus because he's a prophet. God sent him to speak to you. God sent him to announce to you his promises and to make known to you his way of salvation. 
Toward the end of the interview with the Pharisees, the healed man gets a little bit sarcastic. He shows a certain degree of spunk, we might say. He's not going to be intimidated. He goes on the offensive with these revered men. He's tired of their questions. He can tell that they don't really want to hear what he has to say anyway, but are only looking for ways to discredit him. And so he says with some real sarcasm, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? But notice that in the midst of the sarcasm, there is a confession built in. The man is saying that he recognizes himself now, regards himself as a disciple of Jesus. What does that mean? It means, well, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus has come with the word of God. And therefore, this man wants to be a follower of Jesus so that he might learn from him the word of God. So he might not know everything about Jesus, but he's learning. He sticks to the facts and he's beginning with God's help to interpret those facts in a believing manner. And what we see in this, I think, brothers and sisters, is simply God at work. God at work in the heart of this man. The same God who opened his eyes is now at work in his heart spiritually, stirring up in him the beginnings of faith, awakening in him some sense of just how important the Lord Jesus Christ really is. This process of gaining spiritual sight continues when the Pharisees fulfill their threat and excommunicate this man. They cast him out, it says in the text of John 9, and that's technical language for excommunication. He was cast out of the synagogue. And you know, that was a terrible thing. It's terrible today when someone is excommunicated too. But if I may say it, it was even more terrible in the first century Because to be excommunicated from the synagogue meant that you lost your place not only in the assembly of God's people when they worshipped, but it meant that you lost your place in society. If you were excommunicated, then people would not relate to you, people would not buy from you, they would not sell to you, they would boycott you economically, they would ostracize you socially, you would be completely isolated. And that is what happens to this man simply because he sticks to the facts about Jesus, and begins to interpret them with the eye of faith. He's cast out by the false shepherds, by the esteemed leaders of Israel who had so much power and authority, but who used it so wrongly and terribly to harm and to hurt instead of to build up and to care. But while the false shepherds cast this man out of the assembly of God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ seeks him out. And the Lord Jesus gathers them in. And that's a theme that continues in John 10. John 10 is a famous chapter about the Lord Jesus being the good shepherd. He's a true shepherd of Israel. The true shepherd king who who gathers God's people who are being abused and mistreated by the false shepherds. The Lord Jesus gathers them in. And we see him in action here then at the end of John 9 as the shepherd seeking out this, this sheep. He gathers them in and he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Christ loves this man clearly. And the man is honest with the Lord Jesus. He says he doesn't believe in the Son of Man because he doesn't know who he is. And the hidden implication there is, if I knew who he he is, I would most certainly believe in him. Show me, Jesus, who is the Son of Man, and I will put my faith in him. 
Now, of course, that Son of Man title is what we find throughout the Gospels, more in the Synoptic Gospels than in the Gospel of John, and it goes back to Daniel chapter 7 when when Daniel in his vision saw one like a son of man ascending to the throne of God and receiving from the Father all authority over tribes and nations and ruling over them justly. And so son of man, that's, that's code word for king. That's code word for God's king. And so code word for Christ. The man says, I don't believe in him because I don't know who he is. Show me. See the teachable spirit? He is a humble spirit. He wants Jesus to show him the right way. And that's just what Jesus then does. Jesus says to him, You have now seen him, dear man. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. And then just like that, in a miracle of God's grace, the man's eyes go open to the true identity of Jesus. It's been building up through the whole chapter But now he sees it. As Paul would put it, his eyes are open to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And he confesses. It says in verse 38, the man said, Lord, I believe. That meant he put his trust now in Jesus as the Son of Man. He put his trust in Jesus as a divine king, the ruler sent from God to save and to restore And what else does verse 38 say? It says that when this man came to faith, he worshipped. He worshipped Jesus. He bowed down and worshipped Jesus as God's Savior, as Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, isn't that where faith always ends? You know, that's, that's how you can really tell whether faith is present. Faith leads to worship. And where there is no love for worship, where there is no heart for worship, where there is no joy in worship in throwing yourself down physically and spiritually before the Son of God, then there is no faith. Because this is where faith goes. Faith knows who Jesus is. Faith gives itself to Jesus. And therefore, faith worships the Lord Jesus. When you worship Jesus Christ, then you are saying, Lord, here I am. My life was a ruin. My life was a mess. But you, O Lord Jesus, you have come and you have healed me. You have made me new. You have opened my eyes spiritually. And therefore, Lord Jesus, take my life and let it be consecrated to you. You see, that's what worship is all about. Worship is God's people coming together and saying, God, you are the king. We owe everything to you, our life, our redemption. And therefore, take our lives And let them be consecrated to you, God. We've seen then the wonderful progress of the blind man to physical sight and then to spiritual vision. But there's also something here very unhappy going on in chapter 9. And that is the hardening of the hearts of the Pharisees. And we have to trace that for a moment yet too. So second point, Christ shows the blindness of those who think they can see. Yes, the Pharisees believed they had spiritual enlightenment. They believed they had the light of God. After all, they had Moses. They had Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they had after that the prophets. They thought of themselves, as we read in verse 28, as disciples of Moses. And because they follow Moses and listen to Moses, they won't follow Christ. 
Moses, they say, we know where he came from. He came from God. He spoke with God on Mount Sinai. God sent him to us with God's word. But as for this Jesus, we don't know where he came from. We won't follow him because we don't know where he came from. Now, there's real irony here, of course, because as Jesus had already pointed out earlier in the Gospel of John, everything that Moses wrote was about him. If you go back to John 5 for a moment, Jesus has this discussion about Moses with the Pharisees. And in John 5, verse 40, rather, verse 46, the Lord Jesus says to them, to the Jewish leaders, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Or you can go back to verse 39 of the same chapter 5, where Jesus says to these leaders, You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These, however, are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In fact, John's Gospel If we want to understand John's gospel well, you have to understand that from chapter 1 all the way to the end, John is busy showing us how the Lord Jesus Christ is the true fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And some people in Israel were finding that out already. Think back to chapter 1. Nathaniel meets the Lord Jesus, or rather Philip meets the Lord Jesus. And then Philip, in his excitement about having met the Lord Jesus, runs to Nathaniel And he says to Nathanael, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So once again, it can be sad that if these Pharisees were truly spiritual men, if they really were students of Moses, if they were loyal to the God who spoke through Moses, then they would have been able to see that Jesus Christ is the one God had sent But these Pharisees don't see congregation. They don't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And the reason they don't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus is because they don't want to see it. And they don't want to see it because if they do say it, they'll have to humble themselves. They'll have to change their whole way of thinking. They'll have to start living by grace and no longer by works. And that's something they really don't want to do, these Pharisees. In verse 30, the healed man had described the unbelief of the, of the Pharisees as remarkable. He says, this is remarkable. And you know what really was remarkable? It really was remarkable to see the work of God close up. To see it close up as they were seeing it. But somehow not being able to recognize it. Even though you consider yourselves wise and learned people of the light. Yes, it was remarkable to prefer to believe your own opinion over against irrefutable evidence. That is remarkable. That is remarkably perverse. Because you know what it really means? It means you're guilty of suppressing the evidence deliberately. You suppress the evidence that's staring you right in the eye. You suppress it because you don't like where it's going. Now, we sometimes do that in our relationships with each other, too. Sometimes it happens in criminal investigations, even. And that's exactly what's happening here in the face of clear evidence. The Pharisees are guilty of suppressing it. They suppress the light of God that is shining in the person of the Lord Jesus. And that is remarkably perverse. 
Do you see the difference then between the blind man and the Pharisees? The difference is that the man born blind from birth was not responsible for his blindness, but these men are willfully blind. They're willfully blind, and so, says Jesus, they are fully responsible for their blindness. It makes me think of what we read in the letter of the Lord Jesus to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He says to that church, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Brothers and sisters, when people resist the truth of the gospel, when they see only what they want to see, when God's word is rejected by them, they bring judgment upon themselves. And the judgment is that their blindness becomes more profound than it already was. And that's what the Lord Jesus means in verse 39 when he says, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. We might paraphrase the last part. Those who think they can see, those who imagine they can see, will become blinder than they already are. It might make us think of the remarkably strange ordination sermon that God gave to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is about his installation as a prophet. And this is what God gives him as his prophetic task. Imagine this being preached about at the installation of a new minister in this congregation. God says to the prophet Isaiah, Make the hearts of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. In other words, make them blind. Blind them to the truth. Make them even blinder than they already are. Because for so long I have given them my light and for so long they have hardened themselves to it. And therefore, Isaiah, your task is to go out among my people and to make them blind. What a terrible task. Imagine that as the task of the ministry of the Word. You see, for those who hear with humility, for those who hear with patience and who respond, the gospel brings true spiritual vision. But for those who hear in pride, in the arrogance of their human pride, and who refuse to come to the light, the result is an ever-growing terrible, oppressive, spiritual darkness. As one of the church fathers said many hundreds of years ago, in commenting on this very passage, he said, the same sun which makes wax melt also makes clay hard. The heart of the blind man is like wax, and it's melted by the sun shining from the Lord Jesus. The heart of the Pharisees is like clay, and the hardness that was there is made even more hard through Jesus Christ's ministry. That can be sobering for us people of God here today, sitting comfortably in our pew on this Sunday afternoon like any other Sunday afternoon. We are here this afternoon as people who know the truth. We are here as people this afternoon upon whom the light of Jesus is shining. God has given us a measure of spiritual vision. But we need to understand, spiritual vision is something that has to grow. We cannot say, as Christians, we know the truth, and therefore all is well with our souls. What we should say instead is, we know the truth. Lord, let us know the truth better. I'd like to end with a citation from the Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Paul often prays for the people to whom he ministered. Almost at the beginning of every letter, we find the Apostle in prayer, praying for the saints in Colossae or in Thessalonica. And also in Ephesians 1, we find this to be the case. The Apostle Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. He's praying for the church. Remember this now? He's not praying for the world. He's not praying for the pagans around the church. He's praying for the church in Ephesus. And this is what he says. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation that you may know him better. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org. Dot org.